who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom, it's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Is the spooky season. It's episode 49 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and it, it's been a while since I've had a couple of interviews on the show. But yeah, that's what's going on this week. Pet Cemetery Bloodlines is streaming now on Paramount Plus. So I have director and writer Lindsay Anderson Beer to talk about all that to find out what's going on with this prequel to Pet Cemetery. It's the prequel to the most recent reboot. Of Pet Cemetery too, so it should be really interesting to dive in and see what the detail, what little details we might be able to look for there. Also, if you've been watching Castlevania Nocturne, I have Katie Silva, lead character design supervisor for Castlevania Nocturne from Netflix, and there's so many great things visually about that series. I can't wait to dig into that a little bit with her. Plus, I'm going to get a bunch of reviews for you this week. going to talk about Loki, the season two premieres finally here. I'll talk about that. We'll also talk about Gen V from Prime Video. I'm going to dive into the first three episodes and then maybe try and get your reactions on episode four now that that thing dropped because, yeah, that was interesting. Anyway, so I'm also going to talk about the season or series finale of Ahsoka. I'll get into that a little bit as well and see what other trouble I can get into in this episode. Too. So here we go. Let's get things started with director Lindsay Anderson Beer of Pet Cemetery Bloodlines. We'll do that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Jeff Lemire, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, Lindsay, how are you doing today? Good. Nice to meet you. Thanks for Nice to meet you as well. Looking forward to everybody seeing this thing and getting the crap scared out of them in the perfect time of year to, to be able to do that. So when you were going through this and you hear the name Stephen King, and if it were me in your position, Lindsay, I'm like, oh boy, I'm doing something with Stephen King. Does that kind of add a little bit of pressure when you're doing a Stephen King story, even though it is a prequel story? It's a good question and one that I get asked a lot. I think my excitement so overweighed any nervousness, but certainly I felt the huge responsibility. And because of that, I read and I reread the book and I just tried to honor the spirit of the book as much as possible in a prequel and also just pull anything from the book that I could and answer any questions I could that I had as a fan. And I thought, just kept asking myself, like, not just as a director, but as a, a super fan of Pet Cemetery, what, what do I want to know more about? And was that a part of the excitement level too? Because you're doing something is obviously this is the movie that's this is a movie that was been rebooted. Now it's being done as a series. Do you kind of feel like, okay, now we're getting to do something that actually hasn't been done yet at all that, that kind of adds to the excitement level as well. Oh, absolutely. You know, I don't, for me, I, I probably wouldn't have come aboard if it was just like a, a remake of, of, of something to me, the, the, the reason I was so excited about it was not just because I got to play in this sandbox of this beloved IP, but because I was able to expand the mythology and, and really kind of explore chapters that hadn't been explored. Um, and, and really, like I said, answer questions for myself that I had. And I also thought it was really important, um, just this, the trope of the mystical indigenous and the cursed land to revisit that and uh, say, okay, the story that we've been told about the Wendigo and, 
and everything else is, is not actually the full story. That's either an outright lie or superstitions has been you know passed down, but here's the, here's the real story. And, and then also just the ability then to bring in native American point of view characters to give that story life. That was also, uh, I thought important to telling a new version of Pet Cemetery. Absolutely. Now we're going to see a young Judd Crandall in, in this thing. And that's a character that all Pet Cemetery fans know and love. What do you think is going to be the biggest difference for fans coming into this with this younger version of Judd? Well, Judd is so different in this. He's a young man. He, I think, you know, Judd in every version of the movie and in the book, he so steals the show and is such a beloved character and it's been played so brilliantly by Fred, Fred Gwynn and, and, and John Lithgow. Um, so of course it's, it's a big departure because we know him as an old man who seems mysterious and clearly seems like he's lost a lot of people in his life and has, has a backstory. And there's this line at the end of the book that says that Judd is the guardian of the woods, which, you know, speaks to a mythology that we have never seen on, on screen. And so it was exciting to me to like kind of backtrack from there, um, and think about, okay, what is this mantle he holds? But since we know him as this as this guy who sits on the porch kind of smoking and drinking, and it, it was interesting to me to think of, okay, what is the opposite of that? How do we start him as this more naive person who just wants to be out there helping people and leave Ludlow? We know, of course, that he's not going to be able to leave Ludlow because we know, we know his fate. What we don't know is the fate of everybody he loves around him in this story and who's going to survive and, and who isn't. But I, I really, I loved the idea of examining him before he is the man we, we know. Let's talk about Ludlow for a second, because I feel like, I mean, the state of Maine could be a character of its own. Has have somebody who has family there and has been there. The state of Maine alone could be its own character with the town of Ludlow. How much more are we going to learn about this town in this series? Because I was actually excited for that. Yeah, I mean, the movie really, I tried to treat Ludlow as much as a character as I could. I absolutely think of this as a Ludlow origin story and not just a, a Judd origin story. And I really wanted to take that, that theme of, you know, what would you do for somebody you love and, and expand it to all the different people in Ludlow we get to meet and really see the burden of this town curse and its secrets on, on really the, the whole town. Talking to Lindy and Lindsay Anderson beer, who is the writer and director of pet cemetery bloodlines, which will be streaming on Paramount plus on October the 6th. Now, Lindsay, we finally get to get Timmy's story. Tell us a little bit about Timmy Bateman. I also want you to talk about Jack Mulhern's portrayal of this character because it is off the charts as far as I'm concerned. Isn't he amazing? He's so he's so amazing. He actually auditioned for Judd first and, and we said, actually, can you come back and, and audition for Timmy? <laughs> That's awesome. And he just blew me away. I, I I wrote a very impassioned letter to the head of the studio and said, please, this is the only like this is the only person for the role. Um, he's so good. I so what I loved in the book about the description of Timmy Baderman is how he knew everybody's darkest secrets and he would taunt them with, with, with kind of their, their most base impulses. And it was very clear that this was a character that enjoyed kind of playing with its food, kind of the same way that we see Church the cat uh, playing with uh, birds before it kills them. This is, this is an entity that enjoys playing with its prey. So that, that to me was, was a fun basis for a villain character, but what made the character so tragic in my mind in the book was that it also kind of described him as coming in and out of himself. So this is not like a meat puppet, right? This is, <laughs> right. this is, this is somebody kind of stuck in between, which is very tragic. So I needed somebody who didn't just seem like an animalistic kind of straight up slasher villain. I wanted somebody who could also bring vulnerability um, and complexity to, to the role. And he absolutely nailed both sides. You know, he, you kind of see him sometimes he seems like a lost boy and sometimes he's an absolutely just chilling villain. And I, I just kudos to him for pulling off both. So the one thing about horror to me, Lindsay, is it's, there's times where you're watching it and you're going, why would anybody do this? Why on earth would you make this mistake and all these things? And but but this is a little bit different because you've got you've got grief, you've got family here. But I also think it's part of it is your setting, too. In 1969, did you kind of were you able to kind of use that setting and even Vietnam, as a matter of fact, to, to make that choice 
a little bit more. It seemed like it made a little bit more sense for lack of a better way of putting it. Absolutely. And that to me was one of the fun things about doing the movie is that it kind of answer helps answer some questions for why Judd does what he does when he's older. Um, which, you know, it, it's a, it's a thread that, uh, never quite get, gets answered in the, in the movie forms. And in the book, it says that, uh, Judd's encounter with Timmy is why the evil is targeting him as an older man. And then it kind of, it whispers to people and it, it and that you kind of fall prey to its, its influence. And I tried to show that more in, in, in this version. And so we understand why, why people, smart people do stupid things. In addition to, you know, sometimes we do very unwise things for the people that we love. And that, that's always been the, the theme of Pet Cemetery. You know, what, what would you do to spend one more day with a person you love? No doubt about that. Before I let you go, Lindsay, there's going to be questions about this when fans are done with it, I'm sure. But one of the biggest questions is, is this kind of meant to be a standalone season or is there more to unpack here? Is this something we could see maybe go for multiple seasons or even maybe some spinoffs perhaps? Well, this is just one film. So it's a it's a it's a standalone that I, I see as like a, a prequel to the book. I, you know, in terms of anything that spins off of it, there's nothing in the works right now. I think that's always up to fans and how they respond to it. And if they're clamoring for more then you know, maybe that's something Paramount will, will answer. Really quickly. I had, I have to ask, cause you, we hear it in the trailer. How important was it to get that line in there where you say sometimes death is better? I was wondering if you were going to go there. How important was it to get that little nugget for fans in there? I couldn't, I couldn't wait to get it in there. And, and when, you know, when I was writing the script and, and placing it in the right moment, it's, I mean, it was satisfying even for me as a fan and I, I don't get sick of hearing it. No, not at all. So make sure you are ready on October the 6th. That is when Pet Cemetery Bloodline is going to be streaming on Paramount Plus. If you're a Stephen King fan, if you're a Pet Cemetery fan, you got to see it and you got to see what she cooked up. Director and writer Lindsay Anderson Beer, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And you know, you always have to be careful with prequels, but I feel like Pet Cemetery Bloodlines had a very interesting way to go back and revisit, like like Lindsay was saying, you know, the the indigenous part of this, the 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 the, the part of, of you know getting to the origins of the of the pet cemetery itself and getting in the town of Ludlow, just bringing that out and showing how that is just as much of a character as any of these other characters that are out there in this thing. But, you know, to, to get to see, you know, how some of these, how this story really got started and how some of these characters were when they were younger, you know, that you, that you enjoyed already in the movie. And now you're getting a chance to backtrack and learn more about them and, and why they are the way that, why they ended up making some of the decisions that they made later on in their lives and how this story really got started. I thought it was really neat. So pet cemetery bloodline, it's now streaming on Paramount Plus. Again, thanks to Lindy, Lindsay Anderson Beer for talking to me about Pet Cemetery Bloodlines this week. Up next, going to turn our attention to Castlevania Nocturne from Netflix and talk to Katie Silva. She's the lead character design supervisor, and we'll talk to her next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Addie Shankar, and I'm on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I know you're probably already watching it because or maybe maybe multiple times because it's just that good Castlevania Nocturne, which is now streaming on Netflix. And I, I can't help but always talk up powerhouse animation studios and just the wonderful designs these characters have. So why not get the character design supervisor from the show on this week? Katie Silva. Katie, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Doing very good. Thank you. I, obviously, there's already a huge fan base built for this from the first Castlevania series. So you go into this and, you know, there's obviously there's going to be familiar, some familiar beats, but how much were you all consciously aware of, okay, let's, how, how much do we need to make this not look like the original? Um, I don't think we really went in with a mindset of that we needed to really divorce it from the original. We, um, we just have a lot of different influences that have developed over time. And I guess we did want to separate it a little bit from the original um especially with things like colors it's a lot more colorful this time um it's it's less in the dark ages well you know medieval renaissance time dark ages that people are going to hate me for grouping those things together but um <laughs> it's you know more pastel more rococo a lot more colorful um so we went in consciously knowing that we wanted to change a few things but keep it still that same castlevania look 
for sure. And did knowing that this was kind of set during the French Revolution, was that an exciting revelation for you as, as a designer? Because there's a lot of cool things that you're able to play with character design-wise there. Oh, yes. That was very exciting. Um, we got to play with a lot of, you know, silly powdered wigs. We got to play with a lot of very wide shaped dresses, um, frills, ruffles, lace, things that animators love to draw. Uh, you know, pastels, colors, embroidery. I, I love that time period. Um, I love things like watching Amadeus. So it was very fun to work with that. So when you've got a character like Richter Belmont, he's he's a little bit younger than Trevor was, and, and there's a little bit of a difference there. What was the one thing you're going into designing that character like? We need to make sure that we get this particular aspect of this character right. With Richter Belmont, uh, Sam Dietz mainly designed him, but I, I sort of contributed to the model sheet and the expression sheet a little bit. But he is a lot younger looking than Trevor. Trevor in the original series has been through it. He's a little bit rough. Um, his eyes are a little bit smaller. He's got, you know, the scratchy beard lines, but Richter is much younger. And so we wanted to have his eyes be a little bit bigger. His jaw is a little bit rounder. He's got a little bit more. He's very difficult to draw because he's like right between cute and handsome. <laughs> and it's so hard to draw that because with someone like Trevor, you go full into like, you know, manly handsome. With someone like Maria, you go full into cute. But with Richter, it's like, oh my gosh, what do I do? Excellent, excellent. Of course, we've got some more badass female characters in this because that's just what you guys do in <laughs> Castlevania. How how do you kind of play that fine line though? Because we are still talking about French Revolution and the designs at the time. How did you kind of tread that fine line of okay, we have to look like we're in the time period here, but also giving them a little bit of an edge because they're not your typical female of that time. Right. That's a great question as far as like historical accuracy with our female characters some characters especially the human characters are a little bit more grounded but with our vampires we definitely go a little bit into the more goth uh visual k territory if you look at castlevania games like for instance uh, a lot of the ayami kojima art um even in like for dracula x like the succubus design that's not really historically accurate either um, so we get to play around with that a lot more because Castlevania is, it's his, it's historical this time, but it's also fantasy. Um, maybe we push the fantasy a little bit far for some characters, <laughs> but we had a lot of fun. So when you're talking about the night creatures, because that's one of the more memorable things for me when it comes to Castlevania is when you're bringing up the night creatures. And in Nocturne, I feel like you definitely changed things up mm -hmm. a little bit. How much did you all want to change things up for the night creatures? Not just because we're now, you know, we're now 300 years into the future, just to kind of give fans who are already a fan of the series something a little bit different. That's a great question. The night creature designs have changed a little bit because there's a new way that they're being forged. They're not it, it's like the old ways of the forge masters have almost died off and now they've had to reinvent it with a machine like an industrial machine so the night creatures look different partly because of that they're a little bit more humanoid uh there's a storyline about night creatures sort of retaining themselves so we wanted to keep their humanoid characteristics we wanted them to be a little bit less like disgusting in a gory way and more like how is that thing alive like gross in that type of yes. way like, how's that thing alive um, Mari Arakaki did a lot of the night feature designs this time, and she did a phenomenal job. So I'm going to say spoiler alert on this because the show has been out, but I, just in case anybody hasn't watched that, I want to say spoiler alert on this. When you find out you're going to have Alucard in this thing, mm -hmm. and, and it's not it's not not a ton, but he's still there. So you've got that's kind of your carryover from the previous mm -hmm. series. So how do you kind of go into maybe changing things up for him a little bit? Because again, vampires might not age, but it's still 300 years in the future and giving us a different Alucard than we got the first time. Right, Alucard has definitely aged. He's about 300 years older than he was in the original series. The original series, he was more, he's like 19 years old, right? So 300 years past, somebody's gonna change the way they look a little bit. His hair is a little bit more desaturated to show he's older. He looks more ethereal, like, something you'd find out in the forest, like a beautiful, like covered in cobwebs. <laughs> um, Samuel Dietz mainly did his design, but I kind of like, I did the model sheet and I kind of poked and was like, I really like this, I really like that. But he, he's got more like lines in his hair. He's more detailed. Um, he's very difficult to draw and we love him so much. 
talking to Katie Silva, who was the he was the character design supervisor on Castlevania Nocturne, which you can see right now. All episodes are well, the first batch of episodes anyway, streaming on Netflix. Now, Katie, I, I don't know if things ever get a little controversial in the design room, or was there any characters where there was a lot of discussion back and forth on how you wanted particular characters to be designed, and maybe somebody had some different views on that? Oh, that's a good question. Usually, there usually our design process is actually very, very smooth, um, which I think is why we're able to get a lot done because there's not really too much bickering back and forth. Um, but Olrox, I think from the beginning, me and Sam were designing Olrox, and we were designing him a little bit more like I, I don't know how to not like serious. We were designing him more serious, and then we got um, we kept getting those back and forth and back and forth, and eventually our producer said, "Can you give him?" like more suaveness, like more charm. And I was like, okay, I, okay, I get it now. Like, I know what you want. And so I drew Ulrock's kind of like, almost like lounging on a couch, like with a, with a smirk on his face. And then they were like, that's the one, like he's got the, that's the one with the charm. So I think that was the one that we had a lot of back and forth on. There's so many great characters. I know that, you know, these are all your babies. It's hard to choose this <laughs> one, but were there any particular characters that you were especially proud of in the finished product or that were just some of them that were just really fun to draw and bring to life? I think that Joltope is probably the most fun to draw just because we gave her so many different outfits and she has a lot of very exaggerated expressions. She's almost got more of those, that, that 90s OVA, like, crazy expressions going on. So I'm pretty proud of the work that the whole design team has done on her because everybody got to design a different outfit. And that was really, really fun. How do you deal with character? Because there's, I think feel like there's definitely more than one character in here that certainly evolves throughout the series. How do you all kind of deal with that from a design aspect, knowing that a character might start here and then once the series gets to its conclusion or at the end of the particular season, they're end up in it. Maybe there's different weapons, different abilities and things like that, different changes they have going to them. How do you kind of deal with that when you know you've got a character that's going to evolve over time from a design aspect? We generally will consider where the character will be at the end of the season because a lot of the times we'll have all of the scripts in or at least a, an outline. And so we'll try and decide, okay, here they are to start with and here they are to end with and see what the contrast is. Like, is the contrast enough? Is the contrast too much? Um, like, does this still look like the same character but with small changes? I think the biggest change is, uh, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, the headband. <laughs> <laughs> I think he looks a little bit more mature with that headband, but his hair definitely changes when he's wearing it. For sure, for sure. Before I let you go, Katie, I, was there anything in this particular season that you wished you got to do, but you didn't get a chance to do, or maybe something you could be saving for some future Castlevania stuff? Personally, I'm a jokester. I think it would have been very funny to get in some speedrun things, like <laughs> doing a backflip and then with animation canceled to run away to <laughs> speed up. Um, we also are trying to get in Medusa heads, but you either need to be in like an area with a bunch of like gears and clock towers or you need to be in like stairs. And so we're just trying to figure out like what would be the right place for this, but we weren't able to fit it in quite yet. Well, the good news is, is hopefully there's a lot more Castlevania to go and they'll get a chance to do those amazing things. Castlevania Nocturne though, you're going to want to watch that if you haven't already. That's on Netflix right now. It's streaming. It's been streaming for about a week now, I would say. And see all the great stuff that Katie and her team were able to put together. Katie Silver, thank you so much for taking a few minutes today. I really appreciate it. Yes, thank you so much. This has been great. And not just a great story, but also just these incredible character designs and being able to, you know, just bring up the French Revolution and all these different. That's why I wanted to ask Katie about that because I was just so fascinated by the visuals in Castlevania Nocturne. And by the way, after that interview was recorded, found out that Castlevania Nocturne going to return for a second season on Netflix. So excited that Richter Belmont and company going to get more of that story told. Now, I'm not, not surprised because Castlevania has just been so successful for Netflix anyway. So glad that they got a chance to tell. They're going to get a chance to tell more of that story. And, you know, hopefully, you know, get a bigger and bigger spotlight on the show because I want more spinoffs. I want more stuff set in the world of Castlevania, and it looks like fans are kind of with me on that, so I'm super excited about that. Again, thanks to Katie Silver for joining me to talk about Castlevania Nocturne. Up next, going to start getting to some reviews. Loki, Season 2, finally streaming on Disney+. Plus. Let's talk about that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, it's Mae Whitman, and I play Frankie in the new Realm podcast, The Sisters. 
The Sisters is about a museum curator of medical oddities who investigates the origins of a mutated skeleton with two layers of bones. Soon, she uncovers an extraordinary mystery that connects her present with one family's tragic past in hauntingly dangerous ways. Listen to The Sisters wherever you get your podcasts. This is Benjamin Percy, and you're listening to the Down and Dirty Podcast. You can find me just slipping through the timeline. It's time for a spoiler, I guess-ish review of the season two premiere of Loki. I don't really want to go into too many spoilers just in case anybody hasn't seen it yet. I know it's been out for a few days, but I'm a generous guy. What can I say? So this one pretty much picks up right where season one left off when Loki and Sylvie had their showdown with He Who Remains. And now, and then you saw, you know, Loki bumps into Mobius and Mobius has no idea who he is. Well, guess what? Here's the biggest spoiler I can give you for if you haven't seen this episode yet. Loki is time slipping. He's slipping between the past, the present, and the future at the TVA, which is not really supposed to be possible, but it is. And everything is totally messed up. And you, and you actually have Mobius and Hunter B-15, and they're trying to convince the TVA powers that be that, you know, you've got to stop pruning timelines and things like that. And it's getting pretty ugly, and it seems like everybody's just a little off right now. Everybody's trying to figure out what's going on. Everything's very chaotic in this episode. And then, here's the the most fun part for me of this entire episode. When Mobius says to Loki, okay, let's get you checked out. Let's see if we can figure this thing out. And you go downstairs to the research and analytics, I think is the, is the name of it, the TVA. And then we meet OB. And everything just seemed right with the world when we met OB. I don't know how you felt, but I got to be honest. Kei Kwan is a national treasure at this point. I, th- I, think, I think that we've finally reached that level. You know, even before Oscar in hand, but certainly now that Oscar is in hand, he just brightened up this entire episode. Because first... It was a little it was a little manic, it was a little all over the place, and you understand, you know, things are a little chaotic right now, and Loki's trying to explain everything, and and Mobius is trying to understand, and there's fighting going on at the TVA, and then you meet the guy that just helps you try to make sense of everything. And he has all these ideas on how to fix things, whether it be past him or present him or future him, whatever. Didn't matter. We got to meet a little bit of everything when it came to OB. And the, it just, he was a much-needed breath of fresh air in this episode. Because I'm not saying it was a bad episode. It was just a little bit all over the place. And it needed something to steady itself, which is kind of ironic because Loki kind of needed the same thing, right? Because he was kind of, you know, just floating out there and constantly being kicked through timelines and trying to figure out... And by the way, it still doesn't know whether or not Sylvie's safe or anything like that. And I'll get to her here in a second, but once you got to that and they figure out what they need to do and there's this this big dramatic scene where they're trying to fix Loki's time slipping and things like that, and it's 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 a decent scene. It's not like, you know, I don't think it was really tugging at the heartstrings or anything like that, but it was still a pretty good scene, and I'm glad that they included it in this first episode. But then you get to the whole meat of the... Now there's like... After that whole thing gets kind of straightened out, you, there's a, some sort of a, at least, I'm not going to say a civil war going on in the TVA, but there's certainly factions starting to form here. And it's kind of like those who kind of believe in what, what Mobius and B-15 are saying, and then you've also got the people that think that, yeah, we, you know, we need to track these people, track down the people responsible, and we need to eliminate them, sort of thing. And, you know, to prune or not to prune. I guess, and this is the time of year for that, right? You know, do you do you prune the bushes back? Do you not prune them back? Whatever. I mean, if you're if you're a homeowner, I guess you understand that. If you live in an apartment, you probably don't care. But what I'm saying is, is that they're trying to decide, and you know, it was the realization that you know things aren't the way we thought they were. And when you've been living your life a certain way the entire time, and then somebody says, "No, no, 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 that's not it at all," and we didn't, we never really considered X, Y, and Z or anything like that. Then you start to look at things differently. Or you're trying to force people to see things differently than they have their entire lives. That's a hard pill to swallow. So you can understand why there's some hesitation here. I get that. But at the same time, you know, now, now people are either becoming accepting of it or certainly willing to give it a shot, or they're pissed off. So you've got one faction or the other, and that's kind of what's going on 
with the TVA. And then we get to Sylvie, who we see for like a fraction of a second at, at, this, at one point in the episode. So we know that she's, she's there. She seems like she's okay. And then if you stick around for the credits, which make sure you stick around for the credits in this thing if you haven't watched it yet, she ends up somewhere that will be familiar, especially if you're of a certain age. It'll be familiar to you, if, even if you're not. It'll be familiar eventually once they start talking about where it is. And you're trying to figure out, okay, what's going on with Sylvie? So it kind of leaves a little bit of a question as to what's going on with her and, and where she is and things like that. And I don't, I don't see that this is a huge revelation. I mean, some people are saying it is, but I don't know that I would say it's a really huge revelation. It was just kind of, a, oh, okay, so that's what they're doing sort of thing. So I won't spoil that for you, but I, I will say that I... I, I didn't quite. I still. Th- I still love the Mobius and Loki dynamic. I think that's that was one of the better parts of last season, and that's still very much there. And you get to see how much that bond really did grow throughout the season in this second first episode of season two. So I like how they carried that over really, really well. And I like that now we're going to get a little bit of a battle in the TVA and and see what happens there. I worry that they're going to kind of take it a little bit too far, but. I don't know. I'm I'm cautiously optimistic, but this, you know, it's this episode to me wasn't anything like the trailer showed, which I thought was interesting. And I don't know. I'm sure that we'll get to that at some point. And there's references to He Who Remains, but we don't know what's going on with him yet either. I mean, I mean, we kind of know based on other stuff that we've seen, but we don't really know for sure what's going on there. So we'll have to wait and find out. But Loki season two off to a decent start. I wasn't blown away by this first episode of season two, but it was it was at least a good start. Anyway, so I'll go ahead and say that. That's going to do it for my spoiler-ish review of the season two premiere of Loki. Up next, let's talk about the Ahsoka season finale or series finale. I'll get into that too next. I'm James Witham. This is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Vanessa Marshall, voice of Gamora on Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy and Hera on Star Wars Rebels on Disney XD. And you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Rebels fans rejoice like you have not been able to rejoice so far. It is the season, or is it series finale, of Ahsoka from Disney+. And I'm going to get into that here in a second, but I want to actually talk about this episode a little bit. And I'm gonna do. I'm gonna definitely drop some spoilers, so just be ready for that. If you have, if you if you're not ready for that already, here's the deal. This was basically from the get go. This whole show was a love letter to Rebels fans. Let's just let's just put that out there right now. This was a love letter to Star Wars Rebels fans from start to finish, and there was no question about that. Now, could you enjoy it without you know having a ton of knowledge? About Star Wars Rebels? Sure you could, but boy, did you get a lot out of this. If you were a Rebels fan, you got some great stuff between Sabine and Ezra. You got the, and yeah, here's some spoilers for you, so just be ready for that. This thing's been out for a little bit, so you know, don't come at me with this. You had the reunion between Ezra and Hera, which I loved. That was such a great moment there. But really, if you wanted to say that you built on anything in this in this entire season, and especially in this final episode of this first season was the relationship between Ahsoka and Sabine. They built on that very, very well. They also bi- they also built on the relationship between Ahsoka and Anakin in a, in a weird way. And Ahsoka finding out who she is as a Jedi and who she wants to be as a Jedi and as a mentor and what being a Jedi is kind of really all about. And I'm not saying that she wasn't a great Jedi up to this point, but, you know, th- this, there were some light bulb moments in here for Ahsoka as far as, you know, how she was carrying herself and how she was, you know, viewing the world and viewing herself and things like that. So I thought it was really neat that they sort of didn't shy away from that and they dove into that a little bit because the the Ahsoka that we got at the end of this, at the end of this episode, at the end of episode eight, actually even in the latter part of the season, I would say, that's the Ahsoka that I always that I always think of. That's the Ahsoka I always remember. Now, you know, she's still... I'm not saying she's never grumpy. She didn't have a little bit of an edge and an attitude to her. But at the same time, you know, the, this is the Ahsoka that I was waiting to see. You know, the, the, more, the more hopeful Ahsoka. The more, you know, a little bit... You know, she could be a little bit fun at times as well. So we got to see that come out very much, very much in this episode. So I really, really dug that. We got to see that at the end and, what, and the decision that they make to stay 
and help out because that's what Jedi's do, right? They stay by, they stay behind. They did not go back to Coruscant, and I thought that that was really really interesting. I also thought it was interesting to go on a completely different direction with this, that they saved this final episode to have the best duel of the entire show, and it wasn't even close. The duel between Ahsoka and Morgan, after Morgan gets more bewitched than she was before and she gets the blade, and it's blade versus lightsaber sort of thing, that was a friggin' good duel, man. I mean, you, I, I would put it right up there, and I would say, I would say that some of the lightsaber work in the show throughout the season was a little slow, a little sloppy, didn't think it was up to quite, quite up to standards, things like that. Boy, did this one really, really ramp things up. That duel, I could watch that over and over and over again. And I'm not going to get into the whole ranking of the duels thing, but that one was pretty great, especially for, like, Disney+. Plus. That one, I was really, really impressed. And I will say that I liked how they showed Sabine's skills getting better over time, and I loved the blending of the Mandalorian skills with the Jedi skills. I thought they did an excellent job with that throughout the season, and, and we got to really see them come on full display and I loved how like Ezra kind of brought that out in Sabine a little bit right because Sabine was kind of doubting herself and Ezra in his you know in their you know brotherly sisterly kind of way kind of you know brought out the best in each other really and I mean I I guess Ezra was not a practice sitting there on that planet for as long as he was so I thought that that was pretty fun as well that they were able to do that I just think that the show started off really slow and that it tied together so nicely at the end they they made it about the characters and not necessarily about the larger story even though Thrawn very much a part of the larger story and boy did we get to see some very Thrawny stuff in this thing this was there was some very Thrawn like leaving your mercenaries behind sort of thing that was that was very Thrawn you know, having acceptable, you know, the talking about that's an acceptable loss or that's an acceptable out- outcome. I'm like, this is so Thrawn. And that's why you go out and get a guy like Lars Mikkelsen who has been just with this character for so long and knows even at a certain stage in being Thrawn how to bring out that aspect of the character. So I thought that was really, really fun. And, and Hu Yang, David Tennant, bravo to him throughout, throughout this entire season for being the unintentional comic relief at times and being the voice of reason at times too, you know, and actually breaking protocol a little bit. I was a little proud of Hu Yang for starting to break protocol or at least go on with it a little bit. There is one character though. I wish we could have gotten more out of and that was Shin Haiti. I don't think we got enough of Shin in this thing. Maybe this is one that we're saving for, for something else or a little bit further down the line, it looks like she's trying to maybe create an army of her own at some point. Or maybe she's realizing that she's got to do things on her own now a little bit more after what happened with... I mean, Balin Skull basically abandons her and says, yeah, you know what, you could, you could go listen to them, go do you. I could do my own thing here. And yeah, he's obviously got his own path that he needed to walk as well, but I want to address the elephant in the room here for a second because I feel like I've kicked the can down the road enough, and that is that, you know, this is very open-ended at the end of this thing. Very, very open-ended, and when you go on social media when they were teasing this thing, when when Disney Plus and Star Wars pages were teasing this thing, they said, oh yeah, the series finale of Ahsoka, and everybody was like, huh? What? Series finale? So we're not getting a season two? or so? Now here's the deal. You can continue this story without having an actual season two to Ahsoka. You can. Now, do I think there should be a season two? Yeah, because I think there's a lot of loose ends to tie up, and I don't want to have to you know, use half of a season of another show to do that. I don't need the next season of The Mandalorian for half of that to be you know, tying up the loose ends of the Ahsoka series. You know, Let's keep this story going. And these are eventually all going to tie together, and it seems like we're headed towards Heir to the Empire, or at least something that's going to look and resemble Heir of the Empire. Timothy's on. If you don't know it, know it more, because that's, I think, where we're headed with this thing. And if we are, I'm super excited about that. But, you know, with, with Thrawn escaping and with Ahsoka 
and Sabine doing their thing, and now Ezra's back with the New Republic, and the New Republic has you know, a better idea of, okay, Thrawn's out there now, so this is what we have to deal with. We certainly seem like we're heading towards Heir to the Empire, but you've given me way too much to process to now try and throw it in another season of another show, and I don't care what show it is, you can't now go ahead and pile this on another series. If we're eventually leading towards an Heir to the Empire movie or trilogy or something like that, then okay, I can understand that. I don't know how you're going to do that without recasting some very important characters, but maybe it's a, you know, doing it from another perspective sort of thing. You could maybe do that. But that's it's way down the road. That's a cross the bridge when we come to it type of moment. What I'm trying to say is if I get back to Ahsoka here for a second, I thought they did some great casting work in this show. I thought that, again, it started slow it was a little weak in the beginning, and it slowly built up. It seemed like right after Ahsoka's, air quotes, death, and that whole thing where, the, the, she, where she connects with Anakin, and he sends her through you know, that little last bit of training, that's where the show really seemed to take a turn for the better and just never looked back. And I thought that story-wise, they crafted this out pretty well. It, and, if, and it left you wanting more, but you know, sometimes... That's kind of what you need to do. You need to leave people wanting more, and this certainly did that. So we'll have to see what the next chapter is and when that's going to be, and I just hope that they don't have to pull away from another show to try and finish this up because I think that would really do everybody a disservice. You know, Give us more detail. Give us another season of this thing or at least something. You know, If you want to make it about Sabine, if you want to make it a, a New Republic series, you know, and we focus on Hera and, and Ezra and things like that, we could do that, but... You know, don't let this just slip in for a couple of episodes to another show because I think that would just be ridiculous. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of the Ahsoka series finale. Maybe. Don't yell at me. Hey, they're, they're the ones that said it. Not me. Up next, I want to talk about Gen V from Prime Video for a minute because I haven't gotten a chance to do that yet. So we'll do it next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Sean Ryan. And I'm Eric Kripke. And we're the creators of Timeless on NBC, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Superhero School is in session. Gen V is now streaming on Prime Video. Actually, the first four episodes are up there, but I didn't get a chance to talk about the first three yet, so I want to go ahead and do that. And and the fact that there's been a lot of interesting reaction to episode four so far. People are wondering, you know, what the hell that was, and... I guess I totally understand it. But yeah, Gen V is based in the world of the boys. It is the school, university, whatever you want to call it, for for virgining superheroes or people that want to be superheroes or youngsters. But really what it is is this whole show, I feel like, is a commentary, social commentary on the social media world that we live in. Everything's for likes. Everybody's got to get on the gram. Everybody's got to get their thing. But what's interesting is, is that you've got the one of them, Marie Moreau, who is one of the main characters and one of the heroes of the story, or if you want to call her, call her, call her that. I don't know that I would necessarily go that far, but we'll get to that in a second. Because Marie basically is very, she's very infamous. She ends up, and this is the biggest spoiler I'm going to give you just in case you haven't watched that yet, so just be aware of that. She basically, her parents gave her Compound V when she was a baby. She didn't know. She ends up, you know, killing her parents accidentally, but still killing her parents and her leaving her, her and her younger sister an orphan. So now her sister basically wants nothing to do with her and she wants to become a hero. So her sister won't be scared of her anymore, won't think she's a monster. And, you know, there can be one big happy family again. So that's basically why she's doing what she's doing. But when she goes to the school she realizes that being a hero is nothing like she thought it was and basically it's all about you know it's all about you know getting on getting your face out there and becoming a star not necessarily a hero it's very very much not exactly what she thought now I'm not going to go through all the details of every episode with you I'm just going to kind of give my general overview of the series talk about some of the characters and things like that but I will say this, one of the things that kind of turned me off about this show in the beginning, and you know, maybe you're going to roll your eyes when I say this, but it's becoming a, it's been a little bit more of a problem with the boys lately too, and that is that it's almost like they're going out of their way now to try and do a can you top this, you know, how gross can you be sort of thing or how over the top can you be with certain things like like the fact that 
that Marie gets her gets her period, and that's and, and she you know she controls blood basically. She can turn blood into weapons and things. She weaponizes her blood and things like that. That's basically how she ends up killing her parents accidentally. Mom walks in, you know, gets gets a like a like a blood slits her throat with a blood, you know, almost like a dagger sort of thing. And I'm like, okay, so she kills her parents f- with her period. And then there's another thing with the uh, with the Emma Meyer character, you know, she's the one that can the one that could be small, you know, a little cricket. She can get small, where she's basically, you know, having sex with this guy, and she gets tiny. And she's basically riding his penis, you know, like literally, like hands on it. And it's 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 like okay. And and it's kind of that's where South Park started to lose me. I used to really like watching South Park, and then there was a stretch for the show where they just was like, oh, okay, how gross and how over the top can we be? It's like you're. It's almost like when somebody's just doing something for attention. And I feel like you know, like this show didn't need to necessarily do that. So I thought it was really weird that they decided to go in that direction. And and but then you know, and and they still drift into that every now and then in these first four episodes and it's almost like you're doing stuff to be outlandish on purpose when you could certainly focus on this story and one of the parts of the story is with is with one of the characters of golden boy is played by patrick schwarzenegger and basically he is exactly what it sounds he's the he is the one that's going to go to the seven professor brink who is you know it's like this it's his hand-picked protege to go right to the seven, played by Clancy Brown, by the way, brilliantly, albeit you know short-lived. Another spoiler there, but so he's and and he ends up basically losing his mind. This is another spoiler. Golden Boy ends up losing his mind and and killing himself, for lack of a better better way of putting it. The character, you know, he kind of kills himself, and then you know Marie and his best friend Andre sort of look like the heroes for stopping him. When in reality. It was actually Jordan Lee, who was another protege of Professor Brink's. Went well because Golden Boy kills Professor Brink, and then the whole thing goes goes down the tubes from there. But something's going on at this university, or on the outskirts of it, and Vaught is very much at the center of it. Something's going on in these woods, and you figure that out. And it's it's got something to do with with Golden Boy's brother Sam, who was supposedly you know it was supposedly died, but now maybe he's not dead. Sort of thing. So not only do you have the interpersonal relationship between these characters and, you know, how they get along, because Marie wants nothing to do with them. She just wants to, at first, she just wanted to keep her head down, you know, do her thing, become ranked number one, and get to the seven and be a hero so she can reunite with her sister. But then she kind of gets caught up with with Andre and Kate and their group for, for a little bit, and she gets pulled in to the part of the superhero life that she didn't really know much about. She didn't have a phone. She didn't have social media. None of that now, of course, all over that because if you want to be a hero, that's what you need to do. And even, you know, Andre, who was kind of a part of that life because when you when you run with Golden Boy, you had to be part of that life whether you liked it or not. But the underlying story is where the intrigue is here, learning more about what's going on in these woods and what they're really doing and what's going on, you know, who you know with the person pulling the strings this with this with this in uh, with this university, Indra, and she's a very interesting character, and is she kind of maybe playing both sides a little bit? Does she have her own agenda? There's a lot of stuff going on character-wise and story-wise here that you could focus on, but then they kind of seem to go astray by doing these, you know, over-the-top things. And you've even got, you know, Polarity, who's played by Sean Patrick Thomas, and that's Andre's dad. And, of course, you know, the fan carry-on-the-family legacy sort of thing. And so you've got a little bit of that going on. And, and, and Kate, who was, who, was very, who was very much, you know, she seemed like she was in love with, with Golden Boy. And, it's, and what was interesting was it, just, it didn't seem like it was a loving-type relationship. It just seemed like, you know, it's like, almost like a status relationship but it turns out she really cared about him and these group of friends they really do care about each other and you know some and then you've got the rest of this campus where all they care about is likes so there's very much there's a very much a a college you know i've heard i've seen some people say you know it seems very cw ish but you know know, it's because it's the boys you put it on prime video this very much more of an adult aspect to it i can see the criticism of saying it's CW-ish, I could certainly see that, especially with the with the college drama, the college and the school age drama 
that goes on here, and there's there's other social commentaries here at play as well with you know like eating disorders and and of course you know gender equality and things like that and 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 trans visibility and all of these other things. These are all woven in to the story, and 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 but and there's so many things that they could be doing in this show instead of making it afterthoughts. And instead, they're really focusing on, you know, the can you top this aspect, especially this fourth episode was just, I don't know what was going on. And I, I thought I missed something at one point. And I don't really want to talk about it because it just dropped and I don't want to drop any spoilers. But it was just it, it was a very interesting episode. And I thought a little bit out of the ordinary, quite frankly. But I, again, it's not a bad show. I just feel like. There's stuff that they could be doing better here. It feels like if the focus is more on the story, and I and I and I do like that they started to get focused at the end of episode two, heading into episode three. Okay, so the focus is on let's save Sam. Let's figure out what's going on with Sam. Let's save him, and then hopefully we're we're kind of drifting towards what's going on in the woods, and and you know maybe they find out that Vought isn't all that you think they are, and all of these things. You know, there's there's some you know shady stuff going on there and whatnot. So hopefully. They get a little bit more to that towards the end of this first season. Of course, we're already going to get a second season. But just you don't need to do these things to be more and more gross to get people to remember you. Get people to remember you because of the story. There's some good storytellers in the world of the boys. So I really hope that we focus a little bit more on that because I, you don't need to do – you're better. You're, you've got more talent and less of a need to do those things. Trust me. Trust in that, and you'll be all right. That's going to do it for my kind of spoiler-ish review of Gen V from Prime Video. Up next, there's a few little nerd news nuggets I want to get to that could be kind of fun. So let's do that. I'm James Witham. This is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Peter J. Tomasi, writer for House of Penance, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Now you can bring the spirit home. It's time for nerd news. And this is some unique stuff I wanted to talk about this week. Hopefully you're all right with that. But apparently... You know, it's spirit Halloween season. They're going to start popping up. Anytime a store closes, just assume it's going to be a spirit Halloween. That's just going to start happening from here on out. So just kind of be prepared for that. But apparently, now you can DoorDash spirit Halloween. And that's fun. That's a, that's a good idea, certainly. But here's my problem with it. And, and you're like, how could you have a problem with that? Here's my problem. Spirit Halloween is the kind of place you need to go to to experience, right? You got to go in there for all the, you know, and look at all the decorations that you can't really afford. You know, step on the activation thing and let the clown jump in your face or, or you know, it scares your kid and they run all the way across the store and you got to go grab them sort of thing. But, and, you know, looking at your, you know, looking at all the different costumes that you have and seeing your options and, and looking at all the different decorations and just little trinkets that you always have to buy as you're on your way to the register and things like that. You're, you're losing the spirit of Spirit Halloween if you're door dashing this thing. Now, now, honestly, if you need, you know, something at the last minute, you know, we've all got busy lives oh, and all that stuff, right? You know, if you just cannot get your costume by going in there, of course, you could door dash stuff like that. Or, you know, little, you know, decoration items. If you need more stuff for your fog machine, knock yourself out. Do it the DoorDash way. But and so I understand that aspect of it. But to me, I've got to go to Spirit Halloween. I got to go there. I've got to experience it that way. I can't DoorDash this stuff. I this is I actually look forward to going into Halloween stores and seeing what they got and weighing my options and things like that. So I think it's I think it's cool that they're starting to try and do that sort of thing. And, and, you know, for certain things, I think, you know, maybe that is an interesting option, but at the same time, like, don't do that. Go to spirit Halloween. It's the one, you know, one time, one time a year you actually do this. This is the time to do it. So yeah, get on out there. Go actually go to spirit Halloween. Don't DoorDash the thing and just have fun and do it the way it's supposed to be done. Now I want to talk about something that I'm kind of, cautiously optimistic for but also a little bit worried about at the same time and that is that cg cd cd project red excuse me apparently wants to do a live action cyberpunk 27 2077 project and of course you know we had phantom of liberty the dlc that just came out seems to be getting rave reviews but they're in a 
in a very interesting presentation that CD Projekt Red had recently, they talked about teaming up with Anonymous Content, the company Anonymous Content, to bring about a live-action cyberpunk. Now, it's not clear whether or not this is going to be a series or a movie, but they're, they're looking for screenwriters currently, and they're talking about this in their announcement, saying, quote, the new project is in early development stage and has currently commenced searching for a screenwriter to tell brand-new stories set in the world of Cyberpunk 2077. Garrett Kemble, David Levine, Ryan Schwartz, and Brad Doros will be producing on behalf of Anonymous Content alongside with Charlie Scully. Now, here's my only problem with this. And I understand that maybe, depending on who ends up picking this thing up, because somebody will, it doesn't really matter to me whether or not it's a series or if it's a movie, I don't think that really matters a whole lot. You think you could do either one and be fine. But my only problem with this is, look, it, cyberpunk is not a cheap thing to do. Okay, This is something that is an expensive presentation if you want to do it right. So that's, that's my problem, is that you're, you're, you're setting yourself up for the possibility of bad CGI. Or, you know, a really expensive wardrobe allowance here. And and the costume departments are amazing. Some of the stuff that they're able to do. This, to me, has a high dollar figure amount attached to it. When you could do another anime project or another animated project or something like that, you could still play in that space and be perfectly fine and create great content both visually and story-wise without spending a ton. Now, I know animation's hard, man. And sometimes you've got some people that just aren't going to want to watch anime or just aren't going to watch animation because they're closed-minded to that sort of thing. So maybe you think, okay, I bring this into live action, and suddenly, you know, that goes away. People want to pay attention to it a lot more and things like that. But again, you're, you're setting yourself up, to me anyway, you're setting yourself up for failure a little bit here. Because you're you're banking on somebody spending a ton of money to create the story. And I understand. Maybe you're saying, okay, you could do this story without having a ton of money attached to it, right? You could do a like a grassroots type of, you know, cyberpunk street level story that wouldn't have to cost a ton of money and wouldn't have to have, you know, too many crazy wardrobes or effects or anything like that. Yeah, sure, you could do that. But you know what? The one of the first things that fans were saying in comment sections when they heard about this live-action cyberpunk thing, oh, I wonder if Keanu Reeves is going to be in it. Okay, see, so right there, you're automatically, that's your expectation now. So that's your, you know, very base-level expectation for fans. Their reaction is, oh, I wonder if Keanu's going to be in it. So now when Keanu's not in it, I can't imagine he will be, and I have no information on this at all. This is the very early stages. We don't even know anything about this. But, you know, I sort of doubt Keanu Reeves is going to be in this thing. So if you're not going to do that, then you're already setting these fans up for disappointment, which, you know, that's on them because that's a ridiculous thought to have automatically. That For that to be your first thought, I think it's kind of ridiculous, especially when they're saying you're setting it in the world. They're not necessarily basing it on Keanu's character. So you're already being kind of ridiculous in that regard. But at the same time, that's the kind of, that's the kind of thing that people are looking at when they hear about something like this. So just keep that in mind, you know, as this thing starts to cook up a little bit. And hopefully we'll get more updates as they come on this thing. I normally don't talk about reality shows, but 007 Road to a Million was one that I definitely wanted to talk about. It's coming to Prime Video on November the 10th. And it's basically, you know, you've got these couples that are put to the test in a James Bond type of situation for a chance to win one million pounds. Okay, that sounds like it's you know, pretty cool deal. Well, here's the thing. Brian Cox is the villain in this thing. And it's not just these people, you know, trying to race against, you know, whatever obstacles are already put in front of them to try and win this race to a million pounds. But Brian Cox plays like the villain in this thing and tries to throw a wrench into their plans as they go for this race. And you sort of see the different obstacles and stuff that they have to go through in 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 this in this thing and it's 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 not like spectacular but it's fun right especially like if you're a succession fan and you're already a brian cox fan anyway then then you're kind of in it for that plus he kind of looks like they call him the controller but he looks 
He absolutely 100% looks like a James Bond villain in this thing. So it just, if you're looking for something that's kind of fun, and you could kind of see yourself being put in that position, right? Like, especially if you've ever been like an escape room or something, it's very much a a hyped-up version of that where you're actually traveling across the world to try and get this one million pounds and trying to, again, you're being put in a very James Bond level situation. So it's almost like, it's almost like a fantasy camp. If, if those, those used to be a thing, by the way, where you'd go to these places and you'd live life as a baseball player or whatever. You, stuff like that used to exist. I don't know if, even know if it does now. Maybe I'm showing my age with that. But that's basically what this is. And, you know, quite frankly, it looks fun. Is this something that's going to, you know, set the world on fire and, and be the talk of, you know, the, the, the world and social media? Probably not. But at the same time, if you're going to do reality shows and, you know, try and stretch things out and do things a little bit different, I appreciate what they're trying to do here on Prime Video. So 007 Road to a Million going to be coming to Prime Video on November the 10th. I'm going to check it out, see how it is, because it looks like it could be fun. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to Kate, Katie Silver for joining me to talk about Castlevania Nocturne, Lindy, Lindsay Anderson Beer talking about Pet Cemetery Bloodlines, which is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. So many great things to talk about. Make sure you find out more at downandnerdypodcast.com or about the show. Also, subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Follow on social media at downandnerdy757 on Twitter, Instagram. Nobody uses threads anymore, but I'm still on there. At Down and Nerdy on Facebook, at Down and Nerdy Pod on TikTok. And remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds. Wander with us into a world of magic. Do you lack magic? Ever since I was born, I could hear the spirits of the other world. Where old stories take on a new life. If you break even one of these conditions, the consequence is death. And the world is teeming with possibilities. It's midnight, girls! They're here! Get ready to change! Well, for the last time, we're not kissing, Fritz! Join Jenny and Madeline in this fantastical audio drama as they journey into the stories you grew up with as you've never heard them before. You are no more than a demon! Okay, Gown. Let's do this. And reinvent fairy tales with a feminist twist. Ready for your next adventure? Then we'll see you soon in the forest of feminist fairy tales.